Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Consulting. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out to 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson, and it is Speaker Tuesday. Once again, here in the nation's capital, Emmer Emmer Chicken Dinner. That's right. House Republican Conference nominated Minnesota Congressman Tom Emmer, currently the majority whip, as their third candidate for speaker in as many weeks. As we wait to find out what the floor procedure will or will not be for yet another speaker election vote, I am so pleased to be joined by a real expert on the procedures and processes at work bringing us this drama now rounding out its first month. I, your humble host, you see, was but a Senate staffer, and so mysterious are the ways of the People's House to me. But not to Dr. Matt Glassman. He's a senior fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University, before which he spent a decade on Capitol Hill with the Congressional Research Service and the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, Matt, if I may call you Matt, thank you so much for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you for having me. I thought your point, what what so many people are missing here is just spot on, that this is not like winning election uh, to the House or winning election to a Senate seat, right? It's it's the speakership is is to head up a procedural coalition. That That's sort of what I wanted to lead off with, is I think it's such a great point because everybody's throwing their hands. I mean, even really seasoned professionals, right? They're we're all throwing up our hands and saying, you know, what the hell is, are you guys doing? Why is this taking so long? And it's because, you know, this is, you're talking about uniting a broad, diverse uh, set of egos here. And uh, it's a lot of trust and and a lot of things that need to happen going forward uh, for for a speaker to be successful. Yeah. And, and that's sort of the crux of this is that the speakership isn't an election in the sense where you can just claw your way to victory by, pulling in voters who are sort of undecided or apathetic or get them there one time to make one decision. The speakership is an ongoing um, proposition, which is that we are going to back you organizationally and procedurally and empower you to do things. And it's a deal made between sort of the members of the caucus and the leaders. Uh, The members of the caucus, the backbenchers, agree to vote with the leadership on their procedural ideas, how to bring bills to the floor, what bills to bring to the floor, when to bring them to the floor, even if the members don't substantively like those bills, they do that. And they do that in exchange for things the party can give them. Um, and that's a whole whole variety of things. One is it's kind of the goodies the speaker can hand out, be it committee assignments or things like that. Second, it's electoral support. The leadership raises tons of money and helps them win. Uh, third, it's to get their bills on the floor when other people in the party might not necessarily agree with having those on the floor. It's one big log roll in that sense. And then, you know, finally... It can be the the leadership providing sort of a national narrative and national party program that supports them uh, and 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 sort of and sort of policy and electoral goals. But it is a deal. And if you win a speakership vote one time by sort of means that are less than getting to that party settlement, then you just recurs the first time you have to put a special rule on the floor, right? You can think of every time they put a rule on the floor as a revote on the speakership. And I think a lot of people miss that. And and. And the way they miss it are varied, but the biggest way they miss it is by saying, well, couldn't the Democrats help them out? And like, really, they can't. 
Because if the Democrats help you, then that's your new procedural coalition, right? right. Um, you can't have the Democrats help you one time and then be like, okay, well, now it's Thursday and we got to put a special rule on the floor. Let's go get the <laughs> Democrats again. I mean, you could, but then you have a new procedural coalition and in essence, sort of a new party majority. And and so short-term help doesn't help. Which, which is why it made no sense for McCarthy there at the end to turn to Jeffries and say, bail me out. Because exactly. the, the one time would, yeah. would have made no difference. He, exactly. he wouldn't have been able to operate going forward. And it's even worse than that, because as soon as as soon as, you know, as soon as McCarthy knows that, just like Emmer knew it, we saw all this stuff this morning where people are like, well, maybe the Democrats will come to Emmer's rescue on the floor. Nonsense. Emmer doesn't want that. And McCarthy doesn't want that because, no, it's a one time proposition. And once you sort of even make that one time proposition, like even even get their support. Right. You know, more of your old coalition is now going to abandon you. And so you can't even like. You can't even consider like bargaining over it, right? Like McCarthy said, I'm not taking anything from the Dems. And he had to say that or else his, you know, partisan coalition collapses. And so it really is a non-starter in that sense, unless you want to go make a new procedural coalition. And this is why, you know, in theory, and we see it at the state level, people like Don Bacon and the true centrists are sort of dangerous because if Bacon went to the Democrats and said, hey, I got four friends. We might be willing to switch parties for a new permanent procedural coalition if you'll give us these goodies, X, Y, and Z. That's actually a dangerous threat. Now, I don't think that will happen here. I think they're just too far apart. But that's sort of the bipartisan actual threat. Like the minority party is never going to save the majority leader or the speaker designee. But could they combine with Don Bacon and a couple of the New York Republicans to make a new coalition? In theory, yes. That one is actually sort of plausible. Well, so, you know, and and just iterate where we're sitting right now, uh, Emmer has won the nomination in conference. It remains to be seen. It sounds like he's got about 26 no votes against him on the formal con- conference roll vote. Yeah. Um, we would presume, you know, they're, they're at least, uh, they're at least the, the five it would take to sink him uh, on the floor with all 212 Democrats voting for leader Jeffrey. So, we don't know what's going to come next, whether Emmer decides to take this to the floor, whether they go back to try and find someone that gets 217 within the conference. But that's a great point, Matt. What what would happen just procedurally? Uh, we know Fitzpatrick uh, and Joyce have uh, have resolutions prepared uh, that would empower McHenry yeah. uh, as the speaker pro tem, yeah. uh, maybe on a short term basis for like 30 days. Uh, if if you've got if you've got those four five six plus Repu- that handful of Republican members that would work with Jeffries and the Democrats to open the floor up, uh, maybe on a limited basis. But what would that look like? That re- that resolution, I presume, is privileged. Yep. They they go to the floor, they make it. What happens next? Yeah. So I mean, McHenry, just to set the stage, McHenry is currently pro tem under Rule One, Clause Eight B Three, which is a new piece of the House Rules put in in 2003, uh, which you can call it a variety of things. I've been calling it like a vacancy pro tem. And it's the first time it's been used. And you just become pro tem when when the office goes vacant. Now, they were envisioning sort of like a 9-11 style catastrophe, but any vacancy qualifies. And this is, as best we can tell, sort of the weakest of the types of ways you can become pro tem. The other ways in, in Rule 1, Clause 8, or you could be elected pro tem, which is a historical thing that doesn't really happen anymore because they've installed this thing called um, a designated speaker pro tem. And that's every day, you know, you see the first thing they do on the house floors, they read a letter from McCarthy saying today, you know, um, you know, uh, Tom Cole is going to be speaker pro tem. And that designated speaker pro tem has all sort of like the floor powers 
of the of the speaker, but none of like the extra stuff, like not the ability to select conference committees, not the ability to rearrange sort of the capital offices, none of that external stuff. An actual elected speaker pro tem would have basically the full powers of the speakership. It's basically indistinguishable at this point. Uh, McHenry, it's not known how much power he has currently in his vacancy pro tem position. Um, it's really open for discussion. Now, I think it's come to be agreement on the Hill that he has very little power, that he's essentially just the clerk um, there to run an election. Right. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me as a normative proposition, because if this is a continuity of government thing, you would think he would want to have more power. But that's sort of the agreement we have on the Hill, and the members are already always in control of it. So the options for empowering McHenry would be pretty wide. One is they could literally just elect him Speaker Pro Tem by resolution. And that would take a majority of the House, and then he would literally have the powers of the Speaker, but wouldn't be the Speaker in name. And that could be for a term of period, uh, as I imagine is likely. It could also be open-ended. Um, it would still not preclude a Speaker election, but he would have sort of those powers, either for the term period or for longer. Uh, the other possibility would be to grant him specific powers um, or to limit his powers in specific ways. You could say, you're Speaker Pro Tem, except you may not do this, 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 or this. Or you are Speaker Pro Tem and you can only do this, 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 or this. So it's really up to the House. Um, 217 votes can essentially do whatever they want. Um, it would be a privileged resolution to empower him. In fact, Rule 1, Clause 8B3, how he's Speaker now, um, envisions him being Speaker Pro Tem under this vacancy rule until either a Speaker is elected or a Speaker Pro Tem is elected. So it's clearly within the purview of, of holding these elections would be to have an empowerment of him. Now, how you get there, the coalition you do it with, that's a different story. Um, like, I don't think McHenry or Tom Cole or Mike Simpson, whoever you want to throw up there as sort of the Speaker Pro Tem idea, I don't think they necessarily want to get there by six Republicans voting with all the Democrats to open the floor. Um, and so I think they would personally be much more satisfied with a much bigger bipartisan coalition to do it, or even just a partisan Republican coalition to do it that says, we can't get anything resolved right now. We're going to go with McHenry for two weeks because we want to do just one bill, one specific bill. Um, I, I get my guess is that the hardliners who are against Ukraine aid may not want to do that. And so it might take some Democrats, but I, I assume someone like McHenry would prefer that this be a massively bipartisan vote. And, you know, if they want to be holdouts on each side, fine. Um, now, what would the Dems ask in exchange for that? Right. Uh, I don't know. You know, it could be really small stuff that they've been hinting at. Like we just want a little higher proportion of the suspension bills to be stuff we bring up. That would be sort of a very sort of lightweight bone to throw them. Um, but they could ask for a lot more and then they could refuse if they didn't get it right. They could ask for everything up to including like full scale power <laughs> sharing. But I, I mean, I, I suspect that there's enough pressure to open the floor to do that, you know, the foreign aid bills and of course the CR in 24 days or whatever. Yeah, I mean that the Senate, the Senate right now is uh, is is considering the president's uh, proposal for for this uh, foreign aid supplemental that's got that's got Israel, Ukraine, border, Taiwan, uh, a number of things. They're going to have a hearing on that next week. Uh, you assume uh, you assume that gets negotiated out. Matt, is there anyone? I mean, when you think about something like the foreign aid package. Obviously, Schumer and McConnell are negotiating within the Senate. Uh, they're negotiating with the White House. Who's is there anyone negotiating the House position at this point? Yeah. So this is this is a question that's been sort of lingering uh, both throughout this speakerless period and a question that's open. If we were to go to sort of like the McHenry option um, here is who's actually leading the Republican Party right now? Um, who's making the decisions? to go out of recess and reopen the floor, right? Who's deciding when to call the conference meetings for? Yeah. And I don't have a clear answer to that. It's some combination of McHenry, McCarthy, Scalise, 
Emmer, Stefanik, and then whoever happens to be the speaker designee at the moment, be it Jordan uh, or someone else who comes up, Emmer now, obviously, who's already whipped. But there's no real sense that any one person's in charge. Um, obviously, on any sort of major package like this, like a $106 billion request from the administration, Jeffries is involved. Right. This is a joint leadership type situation. Right. Um, but I don't know who's who's speaking for the Republicans right now. And on the aid bill, it really gets even trickier because you have such a divided conference over sort of the Ukraine portion of the aid at this point, where I think you have something like a bare majority of Republicans in favor of Ukraine aid, but a sizable minority against it. My um, guess is that once you roll this whole package together, you're going to get a lot of votes from both parties. Uh, but I just don't know who's negotiating it. And this goes to the deeper question of, say, you do empower McHenry. He's the speaker in terms of the rules of the floor, right? And he'll have full authority on the floor to recognize suspension bills or to recess at the call of the chairs he's already been doing. But the question is, who's the speaker? Who's the leader as far as the party's concerned? Because a lot of the speaker's power in the modern age is drawn from the party empowering them through the conference rules. And uh, it's not obvious to me that McHenry being voted Speaker Pro Tem on the floor would automatically mean the Republicans had to set up the same situation in their party. And you may have other centers of power there, um, or it may just be sort of a free-for-all. Now, there was some question. There was a group of uh, former House counsels that uh, that questioned, and I think they were questioning even if, even if the Speaker Pro Tem were empowered by resolution – uh, that there may be some question of the validity of measures passed by the House. Do yeah. you see that as an issue, that uh, those things might be open to legal challenge? I don't personally see that. So the argument comes in a couple flavors. One flavor is that McHenry as currently constituted as the chair under this vacancy clause would create some potential legal jeopardy for any bill passed simply by him acting and the House acquiescing. And like, I guess that's plausible. Anyone can file a lawsuit, and I've heard of crazier things. I mean, it's, the courts are very hesitant to look into the rules of the House and Senate and sort of sort of go after them. The Constitution clearly grabs, gives House and Senate the ability to shape their own rules. But that's sort of the most plausible claim. I don't think very many people agree with the next level, which is if the House were to empower McCarthy to do something, either by a purposeful resolution or even by overturning a ruling of the chair where he said he couldn't do it, right? Um, that 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 would qualify and, and completely protect them from from liability in the courts. Now, I have heard the claim. There's people claiming that if there's no speaker elected, right, if there literally isn't a speaker, then anything you do is constitutionally dubious. And right. like, I understand why people are reading that from the Constitution. It says the House shall choose a speaker. But I just fundamentally disagree with that. Um, an elected speaker pro tem uh, by resolution, in my view, would have full authority and there's nothing a, a court could or should do to stop that. Now people can come up with whatever lawsuits they want. Um, but I can't imagine a court saying, well, you elected this person to be speaker temporarily. That's what pro tem means for the time being. Um, but you don't have a regular speaker and therefore the suspension bill you passed providing aid <laughs> by overwhelming majority to foreign countries is absolutely right. null and void. I, I, at a practical sense, the courts aren't just going to get involved at that level. So I understand the concern, but you know, as, as a lot of people have also mentioned, you know, if you go to general counsel in any government agency, you're just looking for the answer. No. Right. Right. So you the lawyers, that's sometimes what happens. <laughs> Matt, you're a you're a student of of the institution, a student yeah. of history. Is there any uh, any historical situation that is analogous to what we're dealing with now? Uh, I think this is day twenty one uh, without an elected speaker in the middle, uh, literally in the middle of a Congress. Uh, is is there is there any analogous situation to this impasse? There really isn't. Um, not to this particular situation. 
certainly we have no precedent dealing with the clause of the rule we're dealing with simply because that was written in 2003 and it's the first time it's been used. But we've never had sort of this gap in the speakership. We've had speakers die uh, and, and leave long vacancies, but it was always when Congress was out of session, sign a die. Uh, so, you know, Congress goes out of session in August for the season and they're not coming back till January. And then the speaker dies like later that August. That happened once. But then at the beginning of the second session, they just, you know, they elected a new speaker on the first day and it was no problem. The only analogous situations we really have are the deadlocks, the long deadlocks, at the beginning of Congresses. And that, you know, really boils down to three main deadlocks. Um, one was in 1849, the other was in 1855-56, and the other was in 1859. All these pre-Civil War deadlocks that went on for months and months without them being able to resolve uh, the speakership. Now, those weren't in the middle of Congresses, of course, but uh, many times, particularly in 1859, they were in very tense political situations. Um, the, the, the 36th Congress that opened in 1859, it opened two days after John Brown was hung, and there was just an absolute air. Of, of, of violence on the floor. And, and a lot of people thought the country was going to collapse right there. Um, and so it, these things have happened at tense times, but in the middle of a Congress, no. We've only had two multi-ballot speakership elections when, when a speaker died or resigned. Both were in the early 1800s um, and both were resolved on the first day. Uh, took a bunch of ballots, but they were resolved in one day. Well, that's certainly a cheerful thought that the, <laughs> these <laughs> sorts of things have, have preceded actual uh yeah. civil war yeah i mean I, I think you know one thing and i don't want to analogize the freedom caucus to the secessionists or anything like that because i don't think this is sort of like portending a civil war or anything like that but one ominous thing that you saw in 1859 um that i do see a little bit now is that there's a lot of descriptions of what happened in 1859 where there was a portion of the southerners who simply didn't want to organize the house right they weren't even trying um right. that they preferred the house being unorganized and the federal government being paralyzed because of you know, where their interests had evolved on the slave issue and where the federal government had evolved to. Um, and obviously, I'm not like I am not saying we are on the verge of civil war, secession or that the Freedom Caucus is like that. But I see a little bit of that in the Freedom Caucus folks where like, you know, right now there's no speaker like that. That's OK. Right. Like the federal government doing nothing is is, is fine. Like they prefer that status quo in some sense, uh, at least partially to sort of organizing the House, whether it be under a uh, democratic uh, leadership or even a Republican leadership. No, I mean, I, you, see, you see that sort of articulation of viewpoint in, in shutdown fights where, no. you know, there are, it's an articulated sort of view that uh, some members just prefer, uh, we're better off with the government uh, functioning at a very low level or, or maybe even not functioning at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and that's a, it's a growing divide you see, I think in the Republican party, like a, some people think of it as sort of like a Trump, non-Trump divide. But I mean, we're seeing more and more of this divide between Republicans who want the government to function well for the ends they're seeking. And then Republicans, I think, who are OK sort of with the government not functioning or even functioning poorly as sort of proof of their sort of ends. Um, and that divide, I think, is, is is growing stark. It's not a huge proportion of Republicans, but you do see it. And it sort of overlaps with this Freedom Caucus mentality of of betrayal and that the only thing the government is good for is is, is doing things they don't want to do. Matt, you know, it's it's hard for it's hard for people to understand, I think, unless you've really d dove into the history. But parties, political parties, the Republican and the Democratic Party in the 20th century, they have not always been these uh, these lockstep uh, vehicles for ideology. You think of the Democratic Party in the for much of the 20th century. Uh, united uh, United Northern liberals and Southern conservatives. Uh, it was the civil rights movement that finally broke that coalition up. 
but why do you think it is as the parties have become really sort of ideological straitjackets uh, for for elected politicians that the 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 sort of interesting battles uh, you know within the parties have gotten worse i mean we've had these battles before but you know it like you know northern liberals and southern conservatives spent you know much of the first half of the 20th century being able to elect uh, elect their own speaker yeah i mean that is the amazing thing and, and your example is the best one where you know you had pro civil rights northerners in the same party as the sort of segregationists and they had their absolute knockdown dragouts fights over the issues but they never really had trouble you know electing rayburn speaker and it was never a problem on the floor and indeed we see you know right up until 1995 or so we see almost no defections on the floor from party members on the speakership vote and a couple of things are going on here uh, one is that the parties were more easily able to sort of incentivize and discipline their members where if you turned against the party you could really be put in the doghouse um, and, and and that was a problem for members. But that went hand in hand with the fact that the House was much more decentralized prior to 1995. Um, part of the reason the Southerners could coexist with the Civil Rights Northerners in, in the Democratic Party is they each had their own turf that they could protect. And that was because the committee system was strong. The Speaker really didn't have the authority, right, to overwrite the bills in, in the from the committee system and rewrite them in the Speaker's office. And the, the Speaker didn't have the power to bring stuff to the floor if there was people blocking it, right? The rules committee was still at odds with the speaker and not controlled by them. And the individual committee chairs uh, were there in a very tight seniority system. And so the entire nature of the institution was much less hierarchical. And so after that develops, you know, under Gingrich first, but then later Pelosi, uh, to what we have is the modern speakership, none of these things can protect you anymore if you disagree with the party. And there's sort of this myth there that sort of these parties, you know, they're polarized, but they're not sort of like narrowly ideological, right? They're still in their polarized states far apart from each other, still very big tents, right? We've got 300 million people in this country. There's no way they can all fit in two parties without some right. ideological disagreement, right? right. Just, there's just lots of different parties in here. And in, in the Democratic coalition, you have everything from people who think of themselves as sort of Scandinavian style social Democrats, all the way to people who are in districts that Trump won. And same thing in the Republican Party, right? Just as wide a gap there too. And so there has to be an outlet for those discontents, if the leadership is going to be sort of hierarchical and powerful, it's going to be making decisions to anger people within the party. There's just no way you can get around that. And so this discontent has shown up in sort of these party fights um, and, and the need for a lot of people in the party, uh, either for sort of optics reasons or just because they really feel it to vote against their leadership candidates in the elections uh, and to oppose the leadership on a lot of things, right? You're just not going to have a situation where these people in the swing districts um, whether the Democrats hold those districts at the time or the Republicans hold them, can vote with a leadership agenda that is down sort of the median of the party or even to the extremes of that. Um, the nature of the primary system in the safe districts tends to pull sort of party opinion even more towards the wings. Uh, and that's going to be tough for the people in the center. And the people in the, you know, the leaders also have the opposite problem, of course, which is that they want to protect their frontliners who are running for re-election. Um, and then the purists on the wings are going to get angry about that. I mean, that's the Freedom Caucus story. Yeah. Right. And and we saw it, it, it. You wrote a little bit about this, but we we saw the 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 sort of the more moderates, at, at least this coalition of uh, of appropriations members and, yeah. and maybe a few armed services folks uh, that finally played a little hardball, uh, yeah. gave the gave the Freedom Caucus a little taste of their own medicine uh, in in sinking. Because I think if Jordan had gotten, you know, if Jordan had been in single digits 
uh, closer there on that first ballot, uh, he probably would have sealed the deal on the second. Yeah, to me, that's the big story of the last of the last two weeks, really, is that, you know, the Freedom Caucus had this monopoly on sort of floor hardball where they were the ones willing to try and sink things on the floor. Now, I don't think it ever been great for them. You know, they would sink stuff on the floor or withhold their votes and it would just force the leadership to go work with the Democrats and compromise the left, which policy wise wasn't great. But the Freedom Caucus has never really always been, you know, never been about policy as their sort of main driver. They love that situation because either the leadership does what they want to do or the leadership betrays them. And then they can go crow to their allies and sort of conservative media and their constituents about how they're being betrayed. So it's sort of win-win. But now, you know, you finally saw with that first Jordan vote, someone else stand up on the floor and say, no, we're going to be the dissenters. And it was a coalition, like you said, of, the, of sort of these swing district moderates, like the, the Long Island, New York Republicans who just won election. And then also this other cadre of sort of these, you know, I think of them as like old bulls, right? right. Like we call someone in the 60s, right? People at Granger. Hey, Granger from the top rope. Yep, yep, <laughs> the top rope. Like, I mean, but you get it too, right? Like, if there's anyone who is going to, at a, in a policy sense, really be angry with Jordan, it's going to be sort of appropriators who are, you know, not only concerned about spending, but tend to be sort of on balance serious legislators. And and that coalition, and again, Armed Services was sort of halfway on there. Chairman Rogers eventually decided to back Jordan. I don't know why, but that you could see that crowd, like the moderates plus the probes plus task really standing up to them and that's a big deal if that's going to be true going forward and again i don't know how deep that is because the question is they were willing to do that in retaliation right like scalise got sunk by the freedom caucus and that made people mad as hell and so they retaliated against jordan um i don't know if they'd have the wherewithal to do that sort of preemptively like emmer won so if he gets sunk maybe they'll be able to retaliate and block johnson but had johnson won in the caucus you know, these people, these moderates, the old bulls, the, you know, the Hask and approach types, they're also the most sort of party loyalists um, and they have the most vested in the established sort of power structure. So I don't know if they'd be able to sort of preemptively be like, no, we don't want Johnson. Well, here we stand. Uh, it's we're, we're not a, we're not a live broadcast, so it's almost impossible <laughs> to uh, it is impossible to keep uh, right on top of a situation as fluid as this. Matt, we've talked about some of these external pressures. Uh, you've got the foreign aid package that's going to work its way through the Senate. I mean, I, you know, there, there's almost no single entity with more bicameral, bipartisan support than the state of Israel. I'm sure there's already consternation that the House can't produce a resolution uh, in support of Israel. We've got three weeks left of government funding before the continuing resolution runs out. So let's say Let's just assume for the sake of argument that there Emmer's got too many no's against him in conference. Those guys aren't going to flip on the floor. Uh, he does not take his nomination to the floor. There's no one else apparent here uh, as, as, as the next step, but you've got all of this external pressure building for things that the House has got to do. What are their options? Uh, we've talked about empowering the Speaker pro tem on some sort of limited basis, but where 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 does the House Republican Conference go from here? Yeah, no, it's a good question, and I think I think once the Senate takes up the aid bill um, and the CR deadline comes closer, the House is going to have to do something, and that can take a lot of forms, like we said. One is they could empower McHenry or maybe Tom Cole on some short-term basis, and I think that's probably pretty likely um, to be what they would do as the fallback. Um, another thing they could do is they could just start doing stuff. Um, if they don't think they have the votes or they don't have the votes in the shape they want the votes to empower McHenry or someone like Cole, they could just have McHenry go in the chair and recognize someone to bring something to the floor. 
Um, and, you know, if someone wants to make a point of order about that, go for it. Right. And then you'll have an appeal vote and they could overturn it and get there the same route. Um, there's also a lot of acquiescence in the House, too. Right. Like, it's not clear to me if McHenry went and recognized someone to bring up the aid bill that like anyone would even object. Right? Like, <laughs> like maybe, maybe Massey would or someone trying to make a point. But like I, I noticed this, you know, this phenomena, the very you know 10 seconds after McHenry got the gavel on October 3rd. He did something that I didn't know if he had the power to do, which is he recessed him at the call of the chair under Rule 1, Clause 12A. And, like, that's kind of related to the election, I guess. But, like, we would never give the clerk that power. I mean, that's an right. extreme power of the speaker to be able to bring them in and out unilaterally. And you can see the effect this had in the election, right? Like, they haven't voted repeatedly on the floor, and they haven't had to adjourn to certain times to restart the election. McHenry just brought them in and out when they wanted to. Um and so, you know, how much power he has is really up in the air. So theoretically, um, in your view, if if they brought something like the foreign aid package up uh, under suspension and it got the supermajority required, uh, it it would be an enrolled bill at the House. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't I, you know, the, the, there's no referee in the House. It's not a football game. Like no one blows the whistle if you do something wrong. The members <laughs> have the members have to object. Like this is a basic rule. And like this is why unanimous consent works. Um, and. And, you know, if no one objects, then it's essentially by acquiescence, they are okay with what happened. Um, would it be better in my mind from like a, you know, parliamentarian point of view for someone to object and have the uh, appeals vote and actually have the House confirm that what they're doing is what the House wants to do? Uh, sure. But, you know, the House can do what it wants. And I, I, I just don't go along with anyone who says if 217 members want to do something right now, that somehow that's not going to be allowed. I think it absolutely will be allowed if they want to do it. Um, politically, though, I, I don't know what happens going forward beyond sort of the aid bill and then the, the CR. We have a whole bunch of other stuff that is sitting there that people are going to, want to do. They're going to do the farm bill. Right. Right. They're going to do. Uh, you know, FAA, authorization. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole stuff they're going to want to do. And my guess is that, you know, first of all, sometimes I ask the questions like, who would want to be speaker right now? Like, I don't mean like this year. I mean, like this week, who would actually right. want to be speaker and have their first things be sort of the aid bill and the CR out of the gate? There's sort of a John Boehner clean the barn kind of sentiment here where, you know, if you can just get that stuff out of the way. Uh, you know, maybe McHenry takes care of it or Cole or whatever. And then a new speaker takes over on January 3rd at the beginning of the second session with, you know, in their dreams, an omnibus already passed. Right. Then they sort of get the benefit of not having to deal with that sort of divisive stuff right out of the gate. Well, a big barn full of manure. I think that's a great analogy to end up on here. Dr. Matt Glassman, he's a senior fellow at the Government Affairs Institute at Georgetown University. Give him a follow on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter at Matt Glassman, 312, and his substack, Matt's Five Points. Uh, it is a terrific read, and it could not be more timely, more relevant. If you really want to get into the weeds of this situation, Dr. Glassman, you have been terrific, and I thank you so much for joining me today on 14th and G. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was awesome. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman Consulting. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.